0: indigenous action where we dig deep into critical issues impacting our communities throughout occupied america
1: this is an autonomous anti-colonial broadcast with unapologetic and claws out analysis towards total liberation
2: so take your seat by this fire and may the bridges we burn together light our way
1: We are also part of the Channel Zero Network, and we're just going to take a brief moment to listen to a promo.
0: You're listening to a Channel Zero Network podcast. The Channel Zero Network is a decentralized network of anarchist podcasts bringing you analysis of current events, media criticism, rebellious music, interviews with academics and authors, how to's and so much more.
1: This is The Final Straw
2: Radio,
3: a weekly anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio show broadcasting out of occupied Salaghi land in southern Appalachia.
2: Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy.
3: What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with
4: Comrades.
0: You've been listening to Rebel Steps. I'm your host, Liz. Believe in yourself, trust one another, and get organized.
4: Hello, this is Linda. You're listening to Subversion 1312... On the Channel Zero Network.
0: Whether you are an arco curious or a hardened militant, CZN's ever-growing roster of programs has something for you. Head over to channelzero.network.com to find out more.
2: All right, all right, oki. Okay. Kamustaka ka, Hello, greetings, friends and relatives. I'm Edzi. Today, I'm hosting the Indigenous Action Podcast Show. So, uh, today we have Bree as well as, uh, Pilas, uh, the, their bios and information will be posted on the site. And we are also joined by, uh, some of our podcasts, collective mates, Amra and Anthony. Uh, so I just wanted to, yeah, introduce the topic of discussion um, today we're we're going to be discussing um, <clears throat> the academy or the university schooling, what have you, uh, and particularly um, for the abolition of the academy. So I just want to start out with our first question, if it, if that's okay, uh, on the subject of the academy, what are your all's personal takes on or relations to the academy, and how have you navigated the institution?
5: Thank you. Hey, everybody. Um, thank you for this first question. I couldn't see nobody else's faces. So I was like, Oop, am I going to start? But yes, I am. Um, so I'm a third-year uh, graduate student at UC Santa Cruz, and um, I guess my relationship to the university, to academia is, I think, like most people, is very complicated. Um, but I came straight from undergrad to my PhD program. And so I've been dealing with um, think, things around age, things around being somebody a dark skinned from the Southeast, living in California, um, on top of trying to get my studies done. And I think one of the things that stands out about the way I come into the university and like stayed here is from my family's background. Um, you know, it was, it was seen as an opportunity for us to like develop ourselves. You know, we hear this blah, 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 get a good school, go to a good job, all these things. But I really fell in love with, um, things like the archive, connections to ancestors, um, you know, finding people in these spaces that are really connected to uh, a visioning a future that looks very differently than sort of what most people come into the university to do. And so um, it's very antagonistic. I hope to maintain that antagonism with the university. Um, And I think rather than like keep my head down and just do my research, I'm trying to figure out ways to um, disrupt every time i show up into a space and sometimes that's just my presence right we're, we're still aware that these are white spaces um, but other times it requires other things like you know banner drops a couple of <laughs> a couple of uh picket lines at the front of the building and things like that so i'm still figuring it out as i continue to grow at at this point in my life but yeah i am really really invested in being antagonistic and redistributing the resources that I'm able to have access to here in this space. It's a short, short answer, but I'm sure more will come up.
2: Uh, Pilas, what is your relationship to the academy? For sure,
3: yeah. Uh, I share the same antagonism. You know, it's a very hostile relationship. Um, Yeah, and I see it also as a form of warfare. You know, these are... Historical, you know, settler institutions, right? That have been tools for assimilation, you know, and it's part of the genocidal machine, right? They, they physically kill us off through, you know, genocide warfare. And, you know, they kill us off in another way through schooling, you know? So um, it, it is a very hostile relationship I have with uh, academia. I am uh, uh, inside, uh, in and out of, of a major university. And yeah, I'm, I say the same, uh, you know, uh, focus on redistributing, uh, resources, right? Using these spaces that we are in, um, to disrupt, you know, these, uh, systems of power, you know, and, uh, yeah, we can, I'm sure we'll get into it, uh, later, like certain examples of what students can do, right? Knowing, going in that this is a settler institution, right? Going in with that understanding, I think that, um, uh, helps a lot, you know, um, and not to get disillusioned because I feel some folks get, can be really invested into it. You know, you have like ethnic studies, you know, people study like social movements and things and all. And and in some ways too, it does open, um, different forms of knowledge, you know, for, uh, young folks, uh, coming up, you know, there is, uh, as Bruce were saying, you know, that class mobility, right. That's in our families, you know, mindset, right. You go to school, you make something of yourself or whatever and shit. So, um, but yeah, I think it's not to lose you know to stay grounded and not to lose sight of you know the struggle and really why we are in these spaces which aren't granted just anyone you know and you know the responsibility that comes with it you know and not to get too comfortable and conform.
2: Uh, Amra or Anthony, you want to weigh in? What's your connection or relationship uh, currently or in the past to uh, the academy or the university?
0: Um. Hi, my name is Amra Salamon, and. Uh, I'm, i'll introduce myself briefly i'm autumn and mexican and also have some european heritage and my family is uh, my autumn family is from our uh original homelands near yuma arizona uh, on the u.s mexico border and so my relationship with the university is like it's complicated and messy and i have a lot of critiques even though this is the place that is like literally sustaining my survival under capitalism right now um so i am currently just starting my first year and a tenure track position at an r1 university uh, which is not what i thought i would be doing with the rest of my life uh i am someone who uh you know as a I dropped out of high school as a teenager due to domestic violence and, um, you know, survival needs in a home where there was, you know, gang activity and drug sales and all that. And I lived on the streets and and I didn't see myself ever going into education um, at that point in my life. And later, you know, when I was older as an adult, I ended up, you know, taking community college classes here and there. You know, both through the motivation to get out of the precarious and exploitative um, labor situations that I was in, you know, and I was, you know, for survival engaged in sex work, I was engaged in uh, service work in, you know, restaurants and shitty retail establishments and, and was trying to get out of that situation. Um, and that's initially why I started taking community college classes. But then I also found in the vocational, uh, situation of community college, uh, some community. I uh, found a lot of activism. I, I encountered you know, radical people of color activism for the first time. And I also found courses that appealed to me as an artist, um, appealed to the questions that I had as someone resisting the system from below, from being a formerly unhoused person. Uh, from being someone who had worked in a garment factory, you know, I got recruited into anti-sweatshop organizing and, you know, I wasn't I was a garment worker, a former garment worker so I I had a very different perspective on it. Um, And that kind of got me interested in the space of higher education as something very different from what I had experienced in K-12 through which had just been like completely oppressive and colonial and racist as fuck. Um, And not to say that that stuff didn't continue to exist in higher education, but that I found that there were people creating other spaces of resistance, either other students of color, other marginalized students, uh, queer disabled folks, um, folks who are doing labor studies, you know, ethnic studies, indigenous studies, et cetera. So I kind of had this long trajectory for like probably a decade and a half Uh, Maybe longer, if I think about all of grad school, Um, of going in and out of college, in and out of different forms of college and trying to figure out, okay, what is going to be my survival system? What is going to be my survival strategy and kind of returning back to school as this place of fugitivity where I could kind of rest from like all of the different uh, pressures of different shitty jobs that I had and take a moment to breathe and use financial aid to do other things like you know travel to do international solidarity work travel to um you know organize be involved with movement etc and uh so then you know after basically experiencing the nonprofit industrial complex and deciding that was not the space where I wanted to to really contribute my labor because I didn't want my politics to be owned by the capitalists I was working for. Um, I ended up just kind of continuing with education as this alternative uh, job that let me do things that I wanted to do that other jobs didn't. And it's mainly like my relationship to it is is one of that. Like I think of it as a job. I don't romanticize it. I don't think it's going to be the place where the revolution happens for me. It is, it is just a way of surviving capitalism to do the work that I want to do right now. And a lot of the things that I'm really interested in building are alternative structures to colonial learning and education completely. So I feel like a lot of the time that I'm in the institution... I'm stealing time. I'm stealing resources. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to create communities of resistance, but I also don't want to contribute to the building of the institution in any way. I want to actually do these other things, such as you know, building the autonomous capacity of my community. Um, you know, doing work that that is for my ancestors, for my people. Um, you know, back in my homelands and in the streets. And that's really what I'm trying to do is, is how can I, you know, do the job that I hired to do and and not have it take over my time and my identity so that I can actually do the creative and intellectual and political organizing work and you know autonomy building and capacity building for my community outside of it. And so I think also my relationship has changed as I've become a parent as well in thinking about what I want my child to go through and how much I really don't want to send my indigenous child into the colonial school system. You know, and so I'm thinking about okay, what are the other things that we can create for children to learn what they need to learn to create the worlds we need and abolish the worlds we don't. And I really don't see K through twelve education as it's structured by the colonial state, as as anything that provides that. So I might have a very different stance than a lot of like ethnic studies people who are very invested in reforming education. I want to abolish it. I want to create something completely different for our kids.
2: Yes, thank you. I can relate so much to yeah your your story. Um, thank you so much. That was so uplifting. <laughs>
1: Uh, Anthony. Well, so hopefully, some of our regular listeners know some about me. Um, mine's a bit different. I'm, I'm, I have a much more kind of a subversive orientation and a very pragmatic orientation when it comes to education. Um, largely because my entire life has been mediated by institutions. If it wasn't the institutions that you know my that my father had to go through, which were namely like prison, being a like a career criminal, some of the mental health issues, a veteran, all these sorts of things. There was always institutions at play in my life. On my mother's side, however, was education. So she was an educator from Central America that had to go through her entire education for a second time in order to become an educator professionally here. And uh, as a result, I was there for the whole thing, quite, quite literally. Like I, I was literally in classes with her. And, and she'd bring me along and she'd go, don't worry, he's, he, he, he doesn't make any noise. <laughs> and her rule for me was kind of like, if you're bored, there's no such thing as bored. There's always something to do. So if if this is if you're not interested in what the class is doing, then just draw or read or something else, right? Or pay attention to class. A lot of time I paid attention to class. So I, to this day, I'll hear a lecture on something. I'm like, I know about this for some reason. <laughs> so, but that's either here or there. Point being, this is that my relationship with education was always um, not the typical one where. I had no I had no overt antagonism with it. I just didn't give a fuck because it didn't it had no illusions over me aside from like I would individualize the repressive elements to an individual asshole as opposed to the entire institution doing it to me because that because I had I really was kind of blasé about it. Um where it starts to cross over to I guess your political life is when I started transforming school into a hustle. Um, And really that was there a seed from there from the beginning, everything from uh, at really the peak of the Chicano movement, being in, in in a community where a predominantly Mexican community was fighting to keep a high school open and being on the front lines of that to my own high school experience at ending up at the high school where the actual mascot um the the anti native mascot protests began um in the nineties late eighties early nineties actually um that's where I was and then from there going to college not really trying to graduate but to do anything but work and <laughs> basically game the system. As the years went on though I accumulated such uh credit as well you know college credit as well as um utilizing the resources like like i'ma said um for the community um jacking the system was like a mainstay in the work i was doing and it's remained that way ever since to some degree i'm more so centered in the community than on the campus obviously but um where where it became more intriguing was at the point where the when it transforms from an ed- institution of education, quote unquote, into academia in the sense of the ivory tower, the co- college postgraduate arena, that eventually does cross your path, and that's exactly what happened to me. I had enough um, I had more than enough education to to move into an academic formulation specifically centered on Indigenous studies. And at that particular time, there was no such thing. Indigenous studies as a field or Aboriginal studies as a field at the time only existed in in its prototypical form in Canada and its most mature form in Australia. Um, And so I was developing my own curriculum and so on and so forth. And then as everyone else has already stated, they have an antagonistic relationship to it cuz half the time you're going through education wondering like i could be doing something else <laughs> with my life and um and i feel like i'm co- like i'm decolonizing like like i'm f- like deprogramming my own brain from the colonialism i'm feeding it because it's you're intentionally engaging in this and and I cannot, I've lost count of how many times I've had arguments with myself in my own head or thrown books across the room where I'm like, what the fuck am I doing this for? You know, and to the point where at a certain point you realize, like, um, that even the promise of the academy itself is a falsehood. It, it the idea that one can actually gain economic benefit from it is a problematic crapshoot, particularly if one is going to try and have a career in it. And I'll give you a perfect example. My teaching partner has two master's degrees. No, I'm sorry, three master's degrees and a PhD and over 15 years of teaching experience within the university at all of the major universities of the Bay Area. By the way, I live basically over the hill from one of our guests. (laughs) Um, And so right now, and obviously COVID contributes to this, he's been unable to secure a position in the last three years. And he's not the only one. And tons of people are encountering this where there is a glut in the market and also a transformation of the economic side of things in which they don't actually want permanent hires. They want adjunct faculty and people that they they don't want to offer a tenure track position to, which actually undermines the ability to have, quote unquote, the supposed freedom of speech that you have within your profession, which is one of the few professions that supposedly allows you to have that. At the same time, and my own this is purely my own opinion, academia has also reduced itself to a factory of mediocrity where it indulges mediocrity, particularly in ethnic studies and in and around um, our own communities, which are one should have a natural antagonism that should not be repressed and should not be suppressed when engaged with the. With with the academy, as it were, either either by trying to become a professional in it or just trying to navigate it and get the hell out, you that that antagonism is not unique to me. Everyone has it, and why is it that everyone kind of looks like me that has it? You know, the, the melanin factor is real, and by and if people don't think that's true, by the same token, look at how many people are tenured and what they look like, because I assure you as you climb up the ladder, it, the people tend to get lighter and lighter and lighter. And there's a reason for that. It's the, There's institutional racism and structural factors that contribute to it purging out people, mostly m- most of the best, most passionate people, ironically, because that's not what it rewards. It rewards your ability to navigate a system and a system of assimilation by definition. So ironically... That same antagonism in terms of my own life has been reduced to no longer really engaging in um, direct political work that is, you know, is anti-academy or something like that, but actually I would say against academics. I'm not anti-intellectual. I'm not anti-academia in the sense of it being anti-scholarship, I should say. I'm not anti-scholarship, but what I am is I'm pro-critical thinking. And, and I'm not for the rote kind of pontification that is asserted within the community and particularly the activist organizing space off the campus with impunity. And we've seen it at, at a major level right now where the language of academia has penetrated the popular space of the community. At least that's what we like to tell ourselves. Um, but really, it's only penetrated the space of activism and the activist mindset. And so at the basic level, it's alienated the masses of the population That which is exactly what it's supposed to do. We are the those that f- succeed in academia, i.e. graduate and or get or go into academia profession are a very, very, very small percentage Of the total population of any given group and we're in our cases it's much higher than anyone else's and that is actually and this is where i flip the script on things i think that's a testament to our resiliency not a testament to our failure because it's where it's celebrated on the one hand and this is the part that i always had attention with i always felt like why the fuck am i celebrating this so i'm celebrating my own colonization Is that what that's what I'm celebrating here? And this is this is kind of typified in a way where remember what I said about my high school? My high school was called Fremont High School. And its mascot at that time was the Indians. And it was the grotesque, stereotypical uh, chief Wahoo type Indian images and, and wore bonnets and you name it was the iconography. And I happen to play sports. The majority of the, the team that we played on were people of color, majority of which were either Polynesian, some form of Mexican, Latin American, and actually indigenous people. Well, and not to say that those aren't indigenous people, I mean, Native, quote unquote, Native Americans. And so when graduation came around, the like I said, there was activism as related to the mascots. And so the 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 native contingent that decided that you know went through graduation wanted to bead what they wore, carry a feather, you name it. And instead they were told that they wouldn't be able to participate in the graduation. They had to take all that stuff off. And I was there when they were everyone was forced in mass to do a prayer that was a, a, essentially a Christian prayer. To do to for for us to have a better graduation or whatever you fucking want to call it. And so the same people that are icono icon using the iconography of our people are simultaneously suppressing or repressing the actual people that are that who's who's not just iconography, the stereotype is supposed to be about. And so from that moment forward, the contradiction, which I'd always seen when I was little, was so ever present that I couldn't ever I couldn't unsee it as it were. And the difference was some people are drawn to that fight, and other people are think that fight's just not worth having. I happen to be in the former category, not so much the latter category, and had' been in it kind of ever since.
2: Yeah, I think um, everyone's stories really really resonates with me. Uh, the thing that I, the commonalities I see are uh, alienation. I think it's really, really important um, to get specifically black and indigenous and colonized people of color's perspective on uh, their experiences Often having to feel like they need to opt into the university or the institution to, um, you know, become become part of like a good worker, you know. And I think for me, for my personal um, experiences, um, I wasn't, I think growing up, I wasn't all that... Uh, all that remarkable. Uh, as like a a student, um, I think the things that I like, quote unquote, excelled at were were art, um, and uh, you know, later in life, it was it was mathematics or whatever. But there was a time um, when I was living in a predominantly white area where I was. Um, was almost uh, held back uh, by a uh, by like uh, my kindergarten teacher, and um, you know specifically for a deficit regarding attention. Um, and yeah, I just find it really fascinating that this is like this is what is how we are structuring our learning. Um, that you know you're you're taking kids into a space and you're teaching them all at once and they're also suppo- you know like what does age have to do with with interest um in terms of like you know bringing children together to uh <laughs> you know le- like sit down and like pay attention and learn like it's like are we is that supposed to happen do we need this um can we can we really expect this and why and what is it for um in any case um i'm getting ahead of myself uh but there yeah there for me there was um definitely a lot of struggles and like reading and and um uh yeah like uh by the time i hit high school i realized like uh later on in high school like my my later years in high school i didn't want I didn't really want to go to college because I didn't want my creativity to become institutionalized because um, I realized that that's what would happen. And uh, if ever I were to make art, it would always be because like, I, I would know that the art that I would pump out wouldn't necessarily have my own drive in mind like, the art that I was creating would always have ties to the institution um, and the motivation behind this these, this art or creativity or whatever kind of practice I had would always be driven by the need for, like, a good grade, the need for, you know, funding, the need... So many other needs. Um, but, yeah, I, I definitely yeah, also dropped out of high school, uh, got my equivalency, um, years later, I, I think when I started organizing, um, yeah, I was, I was definitely being exposed to, to things like zines, uh, zine culture had like a huge impact on just my, my perspective, um, In that, like, you didn't really need, like, entire books to, like, it it was kind of, like, liberated knowledge from, like, larger books or more institutional and academic spaces. So uh, eventually, I was organizing with a a queer trans uh, group uh, in so-called Los Angeles called Los Angeles Queer Resistance, and because of the stuff we were talking about um we we wanted to yeah liberate like we wanted to yeah liberate a lot of things but like liberate specific like knowledge from um yeah like higher higher education institutions and we're also being invited into spaces by comrades who are already involved and through that, I think like through other comrades ha- having connections to schools, seeing how much they seeing how much they really uh, yeah basically stole um, and reappropriated um, information and resources and that's a question I, I want to ask. Um, I mean, I guess I can ask it now. Uh, but, like, um, yeah, I, I guess you know what what ways, what other ways are how can people reappropriate resources um from the institution? Um, <clears throat> and like, because, for me personally, it was always like it was always like that like I don't go here. <laughs> I not Whenever I would be invited to colleges or crash camp campuses, like I I I would um in in you know some of the early years of my organizing, I would just crash classes or people would invite me to crash uh classes. Um one of my first classes I audited was a um uh a class. Um Uh, In, in, uh, I think it was, yeah, it was one of the Claremont colleges. Um, And uh, it was a black feminist scholar, uh, Phyllis, Phyllis Jackson. And um, yeah, uh, she allowed me to to stay in and she thought I was interesting because I had more anarchist leanings and she would ask me questions like, you know, why, why are like, uh the anarchists like destroying property um and like i I was just really well you know like considering like the like people if there's like people whose like philosophies believe that property is actually a theft of land of material resources like you know she was like still like you know learning um or willing to learn um and uh really really amazing uh a uh, teacher, and I think uh, for me, I think like I think there was there were certain things that I saw people doing that I really I really thought were were necessary, like um, like, like inviting, like finding ways to uh, pull a lot of the food resources from um, the excess or just straight up gank them and give them out to people who aren't even anywhere near anywhere near the institution bringing them back to uh, the hood or their own uh, where where they're from where people don't typically have access to foods um but uh, yeah I think it's I think for me like even though I think, after after being invited into spaces uh, to start, uh, you know, just talking about some 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 work, I, w- I was realizing that um, you know this was this was something that was helping me maintain uh, just my my practice outside of the institution. So you know, comrades throughout the years would see, that I was doing mutual aid work kind of nonstop and for a stretch of time, I was houseless while I was doing a lot of mutual aid uh, work. And I think, you know, for, for a while, people would invite me to their schools. I'd get like, you know, a few hundred here and there, um, not, not really like worth, you know, what, what is owed to me as like somebody who has, you know, who is black and is indigenous and Asian like, the, the schools owe us so much more than it can actually, more than it can actually give out. If it actually, if the schools gave out what is necessary what the amount that Black and Indigenous specifically people are owed, um, yeah, they would they would invert, they would be bankrupt. Uh, so I was getting paid like nothing um to to talk to these schools and often at times like i think you know yeah like i i do think like what is it is it worth it is it like you know am i being used is my perspective really being heard or valued and like yeah i don't i don't think like it it really does um it does much you know um I think it speaks to the students who are there, like the students like us, the, you know, specifically black and indigenous students who are who are in these uh, predominantly white uh, institutions that are struggling uh, with with health Um, and just yeah, just like trying to trying to make it in, in these like really damaging uh institutions that we were once not ever supposed to take part in or we were once forced to actually have to engage with and dis- dismantle like our our very spirits and um disband or throw away our our actual um our cultures um but yeah like what are what are people's um like how do how do people how do other people subvert or subvert from or like reappropriate resources from uh, the academy whether it be informational resources or um, just material resources like how have other f- folks done that in the past and is that necessary yeah.
0: Hey y'all,
5: um, and thanks everyone for like really sharing um, like how, we, how we've come to the university or how we stated it and why. Um, I know one way I've done it, it's been very like very just direct to my family. So sometimes, you know, um, me and my father, we've used the resources at my universities to help him get access to documents for work that he's not able to get um, as somebody who's not in the university. Um, I've helped, and that's a lot of what I've done with it, right? Um, like my brothers who who might need, you know, information about something with the military or something like that. You know, I've done it a lot, but most of the way I've used it is honestly been to help with my dad when looking for jobs. Um, being able to be connected to the resource center and the career center at the university means that I can see when jobs that would fit his like expertise come up in ways that he no longer can. Um, so I think that way, and then other ways. I think uh, because I do, I do have like a smaller, like you know, internet presence, and I try to share my poems. I think a lot of times I try to process what I'm doing in academia through poetry, and I know a lot of academics do that. But like really trying to mm, stay in this rhythm that feels good, that feels like home to me, uh, while while reframing this stuff in ways that makes my friends, my family feel differently about themselves in the world. Um, And so, yeah, a lot of it for me has been like giving, literally just giving it to my family when they ask um, and to friends and things like that. And also thinking about uh, like, outside of academic resources, um, like participating, contributing to being present allegedly during uh, food redistribution activities on campus that happened like last year, it was sort of my experimentation with that or two years ago. Um, And yeah, I think there are a lot of ways that um, we can share like resources like lectures and talks and literally our syllabi, um, you know, making sure that if you get a syllabi that's cool, you could post it on Twitter, you know, like, yeah, you might get in trouble, but at the end of the day, what's going to happen to us is a slap on the wrist. You know, I tend to think that way. And I think also um, thinking about my position changing in the university and how I can redistribute things at that time. So when I'm working as a TA versus when I'm on fellowship, what sort of labor can I redistribute for myself and my community that makes sense in a way that, um, that, that I can't do if I'm TAing all year or that I can't do if I'm on fellowship all year. And so I think for me, yeah, it's mostly been giving resources to my family and friends and figuring out how to feed people with the money that the university gives me in the event we have. You know, like as somebody who's working in event planning, I try often to use the money for events to pay for artists or community organizers doing work in dynamic ways. And so whether like using, you know, a queer artist who was working in New York to make our thank you cards rather than just buying them off of Amazon, right? Paying somebody directly for their labor um, when I can't, you know, bring them to campus, but I can use the money for events to think strategically about who I'm paying in this position yeah I can think of other ways but those are some that are coming to my head now
0: yeah I think about like I feel like a lot of us do exactly what you were just talking about like like our individual hustling you know whether it's like I'm gonna take this pen home (laughs) or whether it's you know getting like resources or it's you know bringing folks like like each other on to campus and giving honorariums and things like that, um, and creating community that way, or supporting people in the struggle that way, um, or getting you know information and documents and research out for community. But I think like, like I've heard like other examples, like things that I I don't want to go into the specifics of, <laughs> just for you know legal issues, but like. I When I was in undergrad at San Francisco State, like there was a lot of elders that I knew, people older than me, who had these examples of using student organized funds and campus funds that they would like literally funnel to revolutionary movements. Um, and there's ways that folks have always done that, you know. And so people would talk about, oh, yeah, like, you know, this funding went, you know, to fight apartheid in South Africa. This funding went to resistance movements in Central America. This funding, you know, went to resistance movements in Palestine or, or Mayan resistance movements in southern Mexico or, you know, all over the world. And um, And I think that those, like, maneuvers are really important and strategic and the ways that, like particularly student organizing, I think can do that work is really important. Um, so there's this connection between like the resources that students can demand and the space that students can demand, and then these larger community struggles that I think is, is really interesting. And other work sites don't offer that, right? Um, you know, perhaps other social institutions do, but but this is like a unique thing about particularly higher education that I think has been a long time use of, of various resistance movements and students who come into the institution who are part of communities and resistance. Um, so that's something that I've always found really important to, to engage with. Um, but I think like, you know, like there's other conversations that are happening right now that I, I have feelings and critiques for. <laughs> you know, um, I think we're, we're in a moment where people are reflecting on uh, the role of these institutions with slavery and settler colonialism, and with um, you know exploitation of, of migrant labor and racialized labor, and I think that those conversations are often very limited, um, and I'm frustrated by them. You know, uh, I think there's much more that needs to happen aside from acknowledgement and and research. <laughs> into those issues, I think that material repar- reparations need to be there, but also like, I think that the fact that the institution continues to exist needs to be called into question, you know, if its basis is in those things, right? And and I think that that's something that, that we don't often get to in our conversations, um, you know, and then the university like reproduces itself out of those things. so. You know, there's fields of university studies and, you know, um, even the topic of abolishing the the university becomes an academic discipline in and of itself or an academic conversation that's very circular and, you know, embedded with all of these like, you know, capitalist logics of trending and commodifying knowledge and, and experience Um, that's really problematic and I'm like why don't we just do some shit you know (laughs) instead of you know just limiting ourselves to the production of knowledge which reinforces the logics of this place as like you know um, having a colonial apparatus and capitalist apparatus that controls and limits those conversations right so I think that those are things that I'm very critical of and I've been on the periphery of but that I, I don't often feel like I want to put my time into because I don't see it going anywhere productive. Um and so I'm much more interested in in the former, you know, um things that I was talking about in terms of like act, you know, resistance movements and how can we support them and be a part of them and and do things outside of the space of the campus. You know, I think the navel gazing of reflecting on on the campus itself sometimes just gets limited and and we're not, you know, moving towards really taking it to task or calling its existence into question.
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, I share similar sentiments and kind of strategies, you know, going into uh, these settings. Um, But something I also feel that, you know, being uh, in community and doing you know, community work outside of the institution uh simple things uh can get taken for granted you know as students or people in academia some just like printing like to print some flyers for an organization for like a, an event coming up you know that that helps you know people who don't have access to those spaces and uh something else too um that i i, I try to do is uh with house care as well you know sometimes you uh, universities provide, uh, house coverage, right. Something like never really had before. I don't know what the fuck. <laughs> and, uh, but they have like access to things like, uh, prep, which are, you know, the pills to help prevent HIV, which are super expensive, right. But, you know, you can work it and students can get it almost for free. So, you know, gathering those, uh, resources and redistributing them, um, I think is something that yeah, a lot, a lot of us can do, you know, and, uh, yeah, and then of course, yeah, the honorariums definitely—you know—they're there. Uh, student groups, you know, have so much resources at their disposal, right? Um, but again, I think we also get caught up with like school politics and and you know the jumping through the hoops and everything, you know. And uh, we get we get caught up with it. And we lose sight of you know um, you know community work outside these spaces. You know, it becomes, it becomes their own bubble. So this is from my personal experiences, you know, I battled it within myself too, uh, right? And not to get too caught up in it, you know, And but it still is a struggle, you know, historically, uh, students have been at the forefront of demanding, you know, basic resources, you know, and education should be free for all, right? But uh, but what type of education are they coming with? You know, we're gonna advocate for, you know, and I think this, a uh, few of us made mention, slide mentions of ethnic studies, right? And how much, you know, our involvement and our participation within academia, in a way, I feel, kind of legitimizes them. And then they'd be like, oh, look, we're uh, diverse now, you know, we're, we're inclusive, you know, and it, it's pretty it's tokenizing, you know, and it's, it's hard to, um, to, look, to look at, honestly, to be honest and be involved with it, you know, and, and it really brings into question, you know, our role and our position but again, if we come in with this mindset like fuck the institution, let's take what we can um, and, and redistribute it, you know, and something like also like access to, to academic journals, you know, there's is, you know, it's a um, schools are like gatekeepers with it, you know, but we have access as students to uh, these resources, you know, so. But definitely with funds, honorarium is where it's at, you know, there's not too much oversight, you um, you know, especially with COVID now, everything gone. Um, you know, uh, through Zoom, you know, we've been able to bring in resource, have events, and support people from all across, you know, the lands. You know, that don't have to be physically present. You know, so um, that's something that that kind of opened up, um, given the the, the situation. Um, and but also even before then, as like getting um, not just honorariums, but even helping with like. Um, uh, speaking tours for international speakers, you know, who come uh, from uh, struggles down south, uh, for example, you know, and, you know, getting, uh, you know, visas for them, you know, even though fuck the State Department and all that shit. But um, if someone can come again with that mission to highlight uh, certain struggles, you know, and it's a nasty hoop to jump through in getting visas, um, but to have them come and speak to our communities in resistance, you know, I think that's something, uh, that students can, can help, you know, I have, there's like a whole university circuit, right. There's different student groups on different campuses. Um, you know, I'd like to give a shout out to some like students for justice for Palestine. You know, they're, they're one of the groups that, that are out there that are doing this and, and calling out, uh, the Zionism within the institutions. Um, yeah. So I think, uh, Fighting the censorship, right, that, that we're, we're given and challenging, you know, uh, when they have these Zionist speakers coming in and calling them out and disrupting that shit because, again, they use that to legit, legitimize themselves, you know, so I think it's important for us with not just the material resources, um, but also just that, like, that fury that we carry with us, you know, through generations as um, young folks or students or just people invested in community, you know, we see this shit. And we got to do something about it. So no matter where we're at, no matter what campus we're at, you know, um, the subcontracted housekeeping laborers are being exploited. Um, you know, there's people being exploited all around. So I just don't want to get too comfortable. But again, I do understand the uh, the position of, you know, surviving, you know, um, I used to sell food in the street before going to you know school and like, Yeah, it it, it is a relief to have that stipend, you know, to get those research funds, you know? And, uh, yeah, it's just, again, staying grounded and staying focused and and redistributing those resources as, you know, everyone else here has been saying. So in whatever way, shape, and form, um, I'm all about it.
2: Anthony, do you have any uh, perspectives on, um, yeah, how people can reappropriate resources or information from the academy?
1: Absolutely. Um, And some basic kind of uh, tactical and strategic advice. For example, um, campus organizing, the key to campus organizing in and of itself is to not ask permission. Do it until they ask you to stop and then do it again until they ask you to stop. And then do it again a third time until they say they're going to call the cops. So whatever you're doing on campus... (laughs) That's, that's the adage I always used and it worked, number one. Number two was, if it wasn't nailed down, take it. Because <laughs> um, there's a wide variety of resources, financial and material, that are highly advantageous to be utilized on campus. One that was already mentioned, for example, printing services or duplication services is huge, huge. Um, some of the arts, art supplies, for example, for anything from sign making to you name it. Having said that, I'm actually going to flip it a little bit and come at it from the street from as opposed to the academy to the street. I'm going to go from the street to the academy because the majority of my political life is revolved really around and actually just everything revolves around me creating cartographies. And I I mostly, most of the cartographies are in my head, but some of them are quite literal and real. I, I, I keep files and dossiers and shit. Um, And what they are, they're cartographic maps of resources, be it by people or physical resources, and a lot of that emerged um, to some extent just out of the way I naturally think, but it also was very, very much situational and circumstantial. And what I mean by that is the uh, where we are, where I'm at in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, is. What it's One of the reasons it has a, a very powerful activist history isn't just because of circumstantial incidental history. It's actually because of the campuses in part that are here where there's a variety of them in a very small uh, geographic area in terms of uh, square miles, right? There's a majority of very large campuses that are well-known and that actually, because of the the cultural environment on the surface... Um, promote and even supposedly condone uh, activism, community activism, social justice work, et cetera. But in order to actually be effective at it, you actually have to understand what the campuses really are and something that's emerged since that time um, that is different from like the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s era activism versus what we get today. Obviously, I'm talking about pre-COVID. COVID's a different animal entirely, but things will go somewhat back to normal at some point, right? That—that um, that is the capitalism allowing. Uh, having said that, so what emerged, particularly where I'm located, which is in the uh, on the southern uh, side of the San Francisco Bay Area. What we have here is the development of the activist institutions. So you actually have, yes, an academic industrial complex, but you also have that same institutional complex being tied into not just state actors like the University of California, Berkeley, for example, and its connection to the military industrial complex via um, Lawrence Livermore Labs, for example, or... Stanford has similar stuff with the Hoover Institute and things like that, is there's other institutions at play. One, that feed and cloud um, kind of the radical thinking and activist spaces by proximity of students and also their knowledge production, i.e. writing, theory, uh, lectures, you name it. And there's also institutions. So, for example, one of the key things that's focused on are things like um, participatory action research, or um, what's the other one? It's called uh, uh, ah, crap. There's a bunch of pseudonyms. There, there's about three or four of them. I'm, they're just off, I I'm, I'm, I'm can't remember off the top of my head at the moment, that basically mean that the campus creates an institution. Um, for activism to create professional activists these and their their assembly lines for students that they artificially create to artificially tie them into the community and i say this being someone that was to head one of them before it even existed and and literally the only reason it didn't happen is the building literally fell down (laughs) so they had to so i couldn't wait around a year to for a job for them to rebuild the entire building. And so in any event, what they did is hired people from outside of the area and they produced it. And so they created an, uh, an, uh for civic engagement, an Institute for civic engagement at a local community college campus that is tied into another form of social justice pro- professional production, uh, at the, at San Francisco, uh, San Jose state, for example, and then graduate programs at other institutions and then you also have literally professional feminists graduated and many of most of them are reactionary unfortunately from places like Santa Cruz um, and i don't and i don't mean that in, 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 as a pejorative thing what i mean is that's changing the geography on the ground of the politi- the political language and the political focus of what people are doing regardless of regardless of what someone's leaning is, right? And the reason I say a cartography, a map, is I'll give you an example of why, for example, uh, for, for 20 years, I've often on organized at UC Santa Cruz, for example. UC Santa Cruz is extremely hard to organize and it's extremely hard to organize in the community. And the reason is because as it was produced directly in response to the 60s and the 70s, as a, 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 to be this progressive campus. Only what they did is they physically engineered the campus to make sure it has no central location. It's isolated colleges that are physically separated from one another by, by a seating distance. So it makes it physically impossible for you to ever actually do mass organizing of the campus in person because each campus has its own culture and character and its own isolated discipline or disciplinary section. That's just one example. You have another example, Stanford. Stanford, the first two years of undergraduate at Stanford is mandatory for you to live on campus. It's also, you're not allowed to have a vehicle. That means that your only connection to the outside community, if you happen to not be from the area, which a lot of people are not, is strictly through the university itself. And it automatically will put you in its programs that are designed to actually give you a sheltered experience of what's going on around you. And so they never actually step off the campus. Then you have the inverse, something like San Jose State or some of the community colleges, that create these institutions of reproduction for social justice activists that are professionalized and move directly into the nonprofit industrial complex. And these are the people I constantly have to engage with in the street and in the community. They're fucking pains in the ass and they suck. And the, and they really don't know what the they're doing because the damage that they do is directly to their benefit because it's a, capitalist motivation and they've actually never been taught real politics or the reality that's needed on the ground. And so when they're not taught right. often it's, they're
2: it's, being taught yeah. to just study study specific activists. They're they're being paid to study activism and then through that study they that's where their veil of activism is
1: well is it's seduced. kind of um, it's kind of it's kind of a diversity of right of what they produce so for example you're going to end up a, a ton of them are going to be future executive directors of some nonprofit organization or they're going to be someone that's a campaign head and the, and and they're taught it one through a an unvetted system because the people that created the system themselves did it for some economic, or personal professional interest on campus to create an institution or the semblance of an institution to gives the illusion that they know what the fuck they're doing and that they know this community because they're from this community. But they're not because the vast majority of them don't live in the actual community. They commute to their jobs on the campus. And this, I'm describing a microcosm where I'm at, but this is a macrocosm that exists everywhere in the entire country. It is not unique to here. It exists everywhere. It's just a matter of degrees, and And the problem happens when, as a, a person that goes in naively, and kind of like innocently, expecting to kind of you know, I'm I'm just trying to do something good, whatever that may be, is there is is their oh. naivete is played upon it and taken advantage of by the. The campus that they're involved in, and it could be an individual professor. It could be the tendency of a campus, for example, or a particular department or discipline as they're making moves. In, in the, the the Mexican frame, movida is the best example of the, of what I would call it. It's all a series of movidas, and so the the best advice I can give is you have to analyze the academy the way they're analyzing you because they are, and they're taking advantage of you in the abstract form. They don't care about who you are, who you are as the community. They only care about the statistical idea of who that community is and how they can be mobilized to represent certain things. That's why one of the key things that I would do in my work was always to actually battle this concept of kind of respectability politics, that existed within people as they went to the campus. Because for most people of color, unless they come from a, uh, actually add poor people to this as well, um, the poor and people of color, they unless they come from a family that has multi-generational relationship with higher education, or they themselves are in higher education at a certain level, they're going in to an environment that is intimidating to them. And it, it kind of short circuits their the ones critical not awareness but the bravery that you'd have in order to be critical of what's going on there and you don't necessarily have the tools cuz it's a new environment so for example this is this is at a uh, at a micro level one of the main things we did in in every campus i've been at is we developed a program in, that was basically a student success program, and it really wasn't about success in the academic sense. It was identifying what the student themselves thought of as success, what was their goal, right? And what we very quickly understood, particularly in my, in our, and in, for Indigenous students, was that it isn't as simple as what the campus provides. It isn't as simple as like there's the teacher or the the faculty member, uh, a counseling. Uh, institution of some kind and the work at hand, your discipline whatever it may be, you know, what you're studying no, it was actually no you and your family and a peer group that allowed for a kind of a closed self-correcting system that allowed you to navigate both in the community and on the campus so that you don't lose one for the sake of the other or vice versa,
2: Anthony. I really wanna I want to cut you off real quick to invite um, Amra to directly respond to some things that you brought up, and then <laughs> I want uh, Bree to to talk about some of their experiences at the UCSC.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to say that what I've witnessed has been really similar. Um, I think coming from you know a similar context to Anthony um, in terms of like the geography of, of where I was educated. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, though, between the relationship that you laid out of the military industrial complex and the nonprofit industrial complex and the academic industrial complex and the nexus mm-hmm. of those three things is that folks who've gone through like uh, student activist orientation often frustrate me. and, And, you know, I myself am someone who came through that, but pushed against it, is that they think of activism as bureaucracy, right? And so I can't tell you how many community activist meetings and community resistance meetings I've gone to where people are trying to use the same bureaucratic structures they learned in college, like even reproducing structures of the state, like Robert's Rules of Order or, you know, the way that you manage meetings um, that just bureaucratizes and disciplines the people there and, and, you know, oppresses our ability to create actual, you know, transformative community together. The other thing is that um, it's, like, as you said, it's, it's a domesticated form of resistance because a lot of times, like, folks who've come through that student activist formation think that activism is just events. <laughs> like, it's just information or entertainment. Like, it's limited to just events or that it's limited to um, symbolic visual protests that don't seem to really make lasting community power or impact on the target of the protests, or they think it's policy and campaigns. And so basically like their structures and visions of what resistance looks like are nonprofit industrial complex structures and visions uh, domesticated by the state. And, and that's you know how student activists are kind of controlled and conformed by the institutions because there is heavy surveillance of students I mean, I cannot tell you how many times we realized, you know, our phones and our emails were being surveilled. You know, people had listening devices put in their cars, like all kinds of things that came from the police on campus to shut us down, when we were engaged in actual resistance. Um, And then also just the way that, that like we're taught, you know, resistance through the institution in this very limited nonprofit industrial complex structure. Um, that really, you know, builds on this idea of liberal civil society that reinforces the colonial nation state. So that's one of the things that I, I think is super problematic and we need to unpack. And I'd love to hear from Brie, who has a really direct lived experience of some of those problems.
5: Yeah, thank you. Um, and thank you for bringing up UCSC and prepping the drag that I have because I came into UC Santa Cruz in the Department of Feminist Studies um, during the fall of 2019, um, which led to um, the strikes for the housing, the cost of living adjustment, and a lot of activity and um, sort of resistance on campus and throughout the Bay Area and sort of connecting us to graduate students throughout the state and throughout the nation a little bit. and so. Um, one of the things that really resonated with me is, and I can start there, is like about the way student activism sort of is bureaucratized on campus. And one of the things, um, when I sort of came in, I was really interested in just seeing, waiting, and understanding what the landscape of the campus was, um, and really trying to figure out what, what it is folks were asking for and under what terms. But the, um, the The thing that happened for me is I was at an event on uh, campus highlighting the murdered and missing indigenous women and girls crisis here in Canada, um, and I met a couple of folks who were really invested in the fight for the cost of living adjustment, but we're having a frustration with the whiteness and the sort of structure of DSA. And I remember us coming together and really talking about, you know, what is what sort of visions did you have, we all had for what this could be and how asking for a cost of living for graduate students really shouldn't be the only thing we do, right? We have this ability to push, to think about the workers who were out of contracts for over two years at the time, um, and thinking about, you know, taking into consideration what the Amamute are asking for on campus. And so we, we came together and thought about this organizing principle called Cola for All. And it was really rooted in an afro-indigenous practice of building community of honoring practices that had worked before we weren't trying to do anything new we were trying to use the techniques of community building that we had seen work before and really uh demonstrate that you know this ask wasn't something to be dismissed um, as fodder as a as an email as bureaucracy Uh, we were really interested in not being legible to the university of not agreeing to meet with them on their terms and things like that. And so, you know, it started for us with a series of actions in December, um, one an announcement to an ofrenda and on the third day with, um, we invited um, one of the graduate students who's also a member of the to come with us and we opened uh, the space on the Four Directions and then proceeded to commit a series of dining hall actions that really connected uh, graduate students to the idea of what we were trying to do and this is and this is sort of how we combine the tactics of you know who are the leaders in our community and what things could we do to connect the people who are on the hill in Santa Cruz very much in the mountains to the folks in our community and that actually sort of kept us in a very grounded space and we continue with a day of rest, honoring that practice, honoring the fact that we had differently abled and mobile people in our community that we wanted to commit to um, in moving this forward. And so part of what we, you know, strategized and thought about was what is Santa Cruz? Where is the position? Who's come here and why? And if y'all say, you know, y'all, <laughs> y'all are okay with uh, campus organizing, just how rowdy can we get? And You know, when talking about the connection between the university, military, policing, and gentrification sort of came to the forefront for us. And, you know, we dealt with a full-blown police force and riot gear on the picket line for two weeks. And this sort of thing of understanding that you know UCSC is a large is one of the largest employers in the city of Santa Cruz. The the state of California is largely employed by the university here, and so really teasing out those connections and pulling at them, you know, anytime we got using the buses to take us from Berkeley to San Francisco so that we can do actions at the Regents meeting. And students are still organizing at Davis campus from cops off campus calling our bank accounts, right? Like understanding that the money they deny us for living here, they're paying towards the police. Um, and so, you know, the community that we built out of there leaked over so heavily, excuse me, um, into, me yeah. into the cities around us that, um, you know, for us, when the pandemic sort of began, we, we really understood how to connect with, what the folks were asking for in the community about addressing policing in Santa Cruz, and you know, calling out the police who were on our campus who had went to Oakland to brutalize Black and Brown folks, who they weren't doing it in the white town of Santa Cruz. And so, you know, being there that fall was really how I started understanding how you can be in the university, push against it, and and really sort of build community at the forefront. Um, without, despite the sort of things that you were talking about about the geography of the campus, that's part of the reason why we moved the picket to the base campus every day because we wanted people to have a place where they could gather, be fed, um, have children, have childcare, uh, be taught classes, you know, attend classes that they would be able to, um, that were open to the community. And then, you know, it wasn't just during that school year; during the breaks. Me and a homie, we traveled around the state talking to different university students, but also really connecting once again with the alma and getting permission to do the work that we were doing in the space that we were doing it. And so, you know, I definitely think we still battle with the bureaucratic DSA folks, right? Like there's a way that there's all this organizing with the union now, but yet no direct actions were planned for the first uh, day of school through that organization. And so... It's it's still very complicated because white people really don't like when you tell them about themselves. But you know we gotta keep doing it in this way and being illegible at times. And from that, you know, series of connections, I think there's a resource that I shared in the chat. That I've come across from this group called Abolish the UC, and they really worked hard to like put together resources and write from different positions through the UC. Um, and reflect on it as a settler institution, as a plantation institution, um, and really tease out those connections between, you know, the military, the police, and everyday brutality, and reason why students can't live in their universities, and reason why students are hungry, and, you know, things like that. And so... Yeah, that's some of my experience, and even in my department. And this is a little last side note to talk about the professionalization of, of feminism. We had an incident where uh, the department released an email endorsing the the strike, but it didn't have my name or the uh, another the other other black student's name on it, or the, my fellow comrade who at the time no longer is at the university, but who at the time uh, was one of the main voices of. physical like demonstrations and we had to uh, had to ask them why did you rush this email without considering you know some of the very voices that are being called into meetings and being brutalized you know in these coming weeks and so i really had to go hard to heart and be like that was disrespectful like y'all know at the end of the day none of y'all was talking to the police until we got here so what like, what's good? Why did y'all do this? And the whole department, like, you know, apologize, you know, but it's it's dealing with that too, like, knowing that they're doing the right things on paper by canceling classes and not questioning graduate students' absence, but also dealing with graduate students and white feminists sort of, like, being in that space and thinking that that's always enough and not checking themselves more and more before coming out here. So, it's been a long ride, and you see Santa Cruz ain't shit, but they... Do um, they they do still have a means for certain students to get access? But every time I've gone into another one of those meetings, you know, where they're trying to make amends for the first year, I'm still saying you've lost a lot of students of color. You've lost particularly indigenous students and black students, and this means that the landscape of this campus is forever changed. And there's nothing you can do to repair that until you pay us, which you know we deserve, and that will never be enough, as you said so beautifully earlier. But yeah, that's some of my experiences at UC Santa Cruz.
2: Thank you. You better pop off. I'm appreciating the drags. I'm really appreciating the drags y'all of these, these damn, these damn schools. And, um, yeah, I really think it's necessary to point out these connections that the academic industrial complex has to almost every other industrial complex. Um, I'm really appreciating. Yeah. Just this conversation. It's really exciting. Um <clears throat> yeah I I mean of course we want the abolition of the academy but yeah what is your all's perspective on abolition um what does that look like what what could that what could that mean in terms of finding ways that are you know swallowed back into the academy or just having having you know these kinds of intellectualizing or theorizing these kinds of struggles and it gets trapped in the institution? Uh what are your perspectives on abolition? And then also, you know, what are the reasons behind it? Like we have a lot of uh Obviously, there, there's mad surveillance. Obviously, these institutions are on um, indigenous lands um, and created by stolen resources. And specifically, a lot of these institutions are created by stolen people. So, uh, yeah. What what else is your all's perspective? I see um, Amra, um, you wanna take it away.
0: Sure. I, I could start off and then I'd love to hear what other folks think. But um, I think two things. One is, well, actually, it's really one thing, is that we need to come up with and create and hold space for and not stigmatize the things that people go to the university for that are subversive and radical which is is learning and research and knowledge production and creating community through that process and I think it's really interesting like in the context of you know so-called colonial U.S. that we're in how anti-intellectual and anti-learning and anti-knowledge our movements are and our communities are and that's that's been a process of colonization you know what we know especially for those of us as indigenous peoples that like prior to colonialism our people knew a lot of shit <laughs> you know we knew math we knew astronomy we knew you know a lot of meteorology we knew all the different sciences we knew all of that we had deep culture history Um, all of these different ways of knowing that are still part of of our being as Indigenous people, still part of our traditional culture. And so we are people of learning, we are people of theory, we are people of doing, and we need to like re-embrace, regenerate that um, and create spaces in the community for that that are not controlled by these institutions. I really think that that's that's what we need to do. and you know, break down a lot of the hierarchies that capitalism has created between who has valuable knowledge and who doesn't. You know, I remember like different projects that I've been a part of um, where we've tried to do you know, skill shares and just focusing on you know, what do we know in the community and how can we, you know be autonomous what do we need to learn to build our own autonomy from capitalism to de-link ourselves from capitalism and how can we value each other in that process and talking to like you know friends of mine like who are you know immigrant indigenous folks from from Mexico and Central America and talking to their parents and, and you know the the parents would be like oh you know we don't know anything you know our children who are students know all these things and we'd be like wait yo like mom and pop like you know how to like build a car you know how to fix a car you know how to cut hair you know how to take care of kids you know how to cook food you know herbal medicine you know culture you know language you know all of these things that that we as as children don't know right and so y'all are the the experts you know elders people with more experience you know people who've had you know gone out and tried to learn something are the folks who know things and you know even if they don't have like this institutional colonial paper that says you have a degree in so-and-so um, or capitalism doesn't value you because you're brown, because you're black, because you're indigenous, that doesn't mean you don't know shit, right? And so breaking down that hierarchy is I think one of the most critical things we need to do, you know, and, and empowering folks that like, you know, you may not be educated, you may not be literate in the colonizer's written language at all, but you know some shit, you know, and that is important shit that we need for the survival of our people and our community. And we need you, you know, and I think starting there, you know, is, is really where we need to go. Um, and I would like to see us, you know, build these spaces where people can learn things and do things uh, instead of having to go to this colonial institution. And, and the thing that comes with that though, is, is how do we support the person in surviving through that process? Right? Because a lot of us have talked about the only reason we're in higher education is because there is like a fucked up, underpaid paycheck there, you know, or some resource that we can hustle there. Otherwise, we'd be doing these things in our community. So I think we need to think about, you know, building our autonomies to like live beyond and outside of capitalism. And how do we support folks with like housing and food and medicine and those basic things? Um because that that ends up being the draw for people to go into the institution versus do the work in their community, so that's that's a question to think about.
2: Thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I just I just really appreciate you bringing up uh, the idea of hierarchies within the academy within this institution, and um, it's the reason why often I have talked about. Whether they be in a uh, specific, uh, you know, whether they be whether it be presentations inside or outside of the academy, um, talking about the concept of decruitment uh, and how you know how are we to opt out of. Instead of recruiting people into these strategies of hierarchy, of like individualizing um, our, our energy, of like opting in and inclusivity or diversity, how do we actually decoup people from that? And I think the concept was born from also seeing uh, organizations that are supposedly supposed to be movement oriented. Uh, Replicating these same kinds of recruiting dynamics that institutions like the police or the military or the schools even do. So instead of like thinking of organizing as like a mass, like in mass and like as like a mass concept, we're actually considering um, both individual and collectivized um, morale, ideas, freedom. Um, And, yeah, I just also think that what what you talked about resonated with me because um, we're often at times when people opt into the the academy or these institutions, uh, they're often competing for the kind of titles that uh, the institution establishes. uh, And it's hard to, you know, and I see that that kind of dynamic play itself out within organizing spaces, too. So. I think there's also a necessity of like questioning you know that that kind of strategy or tactic of uh, of planning on like uh, creating creating a kind of title for specific uh, sets of skills um, and who, who is the person or the institution or, or other title that, that creates the titles because more chances than not, they're, they're usually in a hierarchical position and that positioning then is wielded over um, other people's heads. Even though I didn't have any background in academia, but I had mad background and mutual aid work um, and activism. And when people started inviting me to the Academy to speak on my experiences, it was a way of, of undermining of undermining the kind of like uh the kind of necessary steps quote-unquote necessary or legitimate steps it takes to get there um but also undermining the kind of like credentials that the academy um says is necessary to to be in those kinds of speaking positions So yes, like decentralized knowledge production. And I want to talk about like later on, like how we can do that, how we can actually start decentralizing knowledge production in ways that are oppositional alternatives uh, to these recruiting kind of spaces. But I I want to hear from um, Pilas on uh, your perspective on um, just abolition and what it means to... What abolition means to you, or like in ways that you're like, um, how the how, and like the also the reasons why. All right, um,
3: yeah, that's a that's a heavy that's a thesis right there. <laughs>
2: um,
3: but no, nah, I think there's there's a lot Yikes. you know to <laughs> it, <laughs> there's a lot to it in which um, I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know what abolition looks like to be honest. You know. Um, but there are certain things, you know, in relation to academia that I am a little hesitant, um, with, and that is using this language of abolition and decolonization, right? Like these are the, uh, big, uh, buzzwords now, right? And the research into, and theories into it, which I feel are good and necessary, you know, when it comes to, you know, our community work, but I have an issue when it stays within academia, you know? So... We're talking about decentralizing knowledge production. Yeah, how do we get that out of that ivory tower, right? And and put in a in a form that's legible, right? Uh, that you know, um, that's not over, you know, too much uh, academic jargon, um, right? So, um, but also strengthening, you know, our proxies. You know, it's not just the research, right? And sometimes, you know, what we do in in these, you know, school halls and doing these research is necessary to get like these numbers out of certain populations facing certain issues, uh, research into companies that are exporting our land on our people, right? There's the, with the UCs, the 20 meter tower, right? They want like um, news um, in Hawaii, they want to build on sacred land, you know, and the research and how it is tied with uh, the military and, and policing and surveillance, right? And the investment into it. So I see these schools as, um, say institutions that are involved with uh, this this type of violence um, so but for us to, we need folks to to know that these projects are going in going on you know and see who's involved. Uh, there's another project um, by some anthropologist at the University of Utah named Richard Hansen and he wants to build like a, a theme park at a sacred site in Guatemala you know and just like the whole field of anthropology in itself right coming in and studying native communities, right? To better, to best exploit us, you know, and kill us off and shit, you know? So, um, but like when it becomes, uh, you know, of black, black or brown folks in these positions, being the researchers, you know, it, it kind of, uh, yeah, it just it, it puts us in a difficult position, right? Because um, in a way we are upholding this settler institution, right? But if there's a way that we can flip it to benefit our communities, to call out these companies, you know these schools they they um they export these ideas right of like uh the economics the free market right you have the uh, university of chicago uh the chicago boys who were you know um uh there with uh pinochet in chile after the coup right and how it goes hand in hand and so uh these fat is fascist it's a fascist breeding ground um in, in my opinion right under the guise of you know freedom whatever the fuck free speech whatever free market all their bullshit. So, um, I don't know. I just find that I, one, I, I don't know, again, what abolition looks like, uh, but I do know how to be rowdy and fuck shit up <laughs> and cost it out when I see it. Um, and I think that's, that's, again, that's what's needed. And then from there, you know, how can we imagine another space, you know, outside of, uh, of academia of learning and it's, yeah. And our embracing our, you yeah, know, our, uh, intellectualism, right. In whatever way, shape and form It comes in, right? Just because someone has a little title behind their name, uh, you know, doesn't make it so so much different, you know. Like I'm still saying the same shit I've been saying, right? And like now you want now people want to listen to me just because I got a title, so like I'm not I'm not really with it. So it's just not to again not to invest in it. Um, But again, if there are people in these positions calling this shit out, like we do need people in all places, um, I feel because if not, again, these fascists are just going to run amok. And that's why I think like things like uh, the Battle of Berkeley, right? Was it Milo Yiannopoulos or whatever that for? Um, those right wing figureheads when they come and community shows up and shuts them down, you know. So uh, we got a video submitted from some, some students um, at another campus um, confronting these right wing fascists who come um, with their cameras uh, to record and and they flip they 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 talk to students as if they're just journalists. And uh, they flip the narrative to make it seem as if, you know, the students don't know what they're talking about, don't know why they're out protesting, you know? So, but when these um, right-wing figures come out, even under the guise of being journalists, objective journalists, right, we know their their interior motives. So we got to research them. We got to know how they think, you know, how they operate. And we got to call that shit out. And we got to, like, you know, address it directly. So, again, we got a little video that was submitted to us um, from a student that took, Action in, into their own hands didn't need anyone, um, and destroy you know destroying property uh, um, and uh, yeah so there's a little clip
2: if we have time we could share but this is what we go through this man looked at us and he's obviously targeting us he comes up to my cameraman um, maliciously and you see those eyes of evil and he actually assaults the cameraman in just a few seconds here and pours that drink. All over my $3,000 camera and right here boom hits him pours the drink into the camera the camera immediately starts to get messed up you can watch as the lens immediately dips out of focus the motherboard is getting fried um, in a second here we get some hope and the camera starts to come back into focus and so we're trying to fix it obviously the guy ran away like every sort of shim lord does and you can start to see and there you go the camera is officially dead so um, this would be my third camera now that they fried.
3: And again, those are just some examples for us to use our research, our understandings, our proxies uh, into action on these campuses wherever they may be. So, my
2: opinion. Yeah, I want to invite um, <clears throat> us to to yeah to play that play that clip at the end. Um, I think um, if there is any, I know I think. um, Amra um, wanted to uh, say some things.
0: Um, I think the the one question that we were talking about before we, we started the show and we were chatting about what will we talk about today um, that we haven't tackled yet is indigenous studies. What do we do with that? Um, you know, and the the parallels of you know ethnic studies what do we do with those formations? And what do we think that they are? And what are some of the problems and pitfalls that they've created? I think that would be um, a question that I would like to discuss with you all, because I think it gets really messy, you know? And, And I'm concerned about a lot of the ways that the institutions and becoming institutionalized has really domesticated the potential of these forms of knowledge. Um, so for example, like I think a lot of indigenous studies or American Indian studies or native studies programs that I've seen uh, have, really have the framework of capitalist economic nation development as their structure. You know, so what they're doing is training folks from the res to bureaucratize and run reservations as if they are capitalist entities or colonial nation states and so that is a question of mine like is tribal governance through the colonial structure and nation building through capitalism and extraction really what indigenous people should be in indigenous studies learning to do and i i personally don't think so (laughs) um so that's uh you know as, as Anthony's just sitting in the chat. That's applied indigenous studies. But then, you know, broadly, what what are we thinking about um, theoretical indigenous studies, other forms of indigenous studies, where we're reproducing the way of knowing and extracting knowledge that we've inherited from the colonial system, and are we producing things that actually are moving us towards, like, you know, this radical decolonial abolitionist other place that we want to be? that we're struggling to imagine. Um, I don't know that we are, you know. I, I find very few places where we're actually doing that work. I think we say we're doing it, but, but we're reproducing the wheel, you know?
2: I'm curious what you all think. Anthony?
1: There's a lot to respond to there. I was hoping to open up space for it. I'm gonna say whatever she, whenever you wanna say before you have to go. <laughs> like, um, uh, Well, I mean, I want to go back to the previous topic and I'll hit this topic too. On the previous topic, the majority of my uh, work really um, these days is about archives and the loss of archives. Like really it's uh, to summarize what I do now is actually I look at campuses, not so much as resources and stuff like that. I'd still look at it for that stuff as well, but actually I look at them as a threat a threat to the community because they would become unilaterally become gatekeepers where stuff goes in and never comes back out again. And like me personally, locally, I'm, I'm sitting one of my, one of my aunts, her home isn't even in, in the South Bay anymore. She lives in the central Valley and she's in her home. She's sitting on essentially an archive of the entire Chicano struggle of the South Bay. And, that she has no place to put it right and the only option for a place to put it is in a university where it's going to disappear and so i look at the universities now the best and out the most analogous thing i can say is is they have to be seen kind of in the same threatening way as these museums are and they're not collaborative institutions and and where they are collaborative they have to be forced to be collaborative um Another example I can give is, I remember one year at uh, Alcatraz, we had the the sunrise ceremony on Thanksgiving Day, and typically it's it was almost always opened by um, Anne-Marie Sayers, a, a local Ohlone uh, elder. And this one year, and I've known Anne-Marie for, wow, uh, close to 20 years now, um, she was livid. And this is before the ceremony begins, before anything's talking, she was just spitting fire. And I'd never seen her that angry before. And I was like, wow, what's going on? And then she elaborated further. She had found out that UC Berkeley, she found out that day, basically, that UC Berkeley for all this time had been sitting on the remains of relatives To the quantity of something like forty-eight thousand remains of Indigenous people at the UC Berkeley campus, her people, and and understandably so, you know, she went, she was on fire, and that has been, that said to me everything I kind of need to know. It's like, so there's no, there's no, why would they give a shit if they don't give a shit about? Our relatives and our ancestors, what the fuck are they going to care about a piece of paper that someone, some organization left, you know, for, for posterity that the young people can learn from? So, in other words, it's a combative relationship that has to be developed. As for Indigenous Studies, um, Indigenous Studies is when, I would say it was at kind of the beginnings of the field in the U.S., because like I said, it didn't exist. I had to create my own curriculum. At that time, the struggle unbeknownst to me, really, was about what that would look like. Now, Indigenous Studies programs are everywhere in one way, shape, or form. Some have been become capitalist things. But that was actually the danger that was presented. Because I know what I worked on, my big threat wasn't the danger of Indigenous Studies becoming A mechanism of capitalism, though that's always ever-present. Actually, I just didn't want to become another ethnic studies. I mean, otherwise, that's what we have Native American Studies for, Mesoamerican Studies for, Central American Studies for, you name it. And so there was a way of looking at learning and ourselves historically and also socially in a very different way that I kind of developed. I mean, I literally wrote curriculum. And so at that time, it formulated one way. At the same time, how did I end up not going into indigenous studies? It's exactly what Amina uh, described, which was there was another academic um, <laughs> uh, uh, that's pretty well known, um, in, in indigenous um, scholar. And I was looking into a program to where I could go to the unit this university and I noticed that there was a webpage that still had her name present all her work present what she was doing and then I was reading one of her books and I had a kind of a quasi anonymous essay by her an article about the department she was in in one of the first indigenous studies departments in the United States and it sounded like a disaster, and I'd had a real weird experience with this department, thanks to an overzealous aunt. Um, but that's not <laughs> here or there. So I contacted this person. I said, "Hey, I'm curious. When you wrote this article, were you writing about this department? Because um, I see that you're still listening." And not and not only she goes, "Yes, I was writing about the department." But not only was I writing about that department. I don't even work there anymore. They're just writing on my claim in order to per- perpetuate and advertise this department. And then the real shocker came and and she said to me, she said, I I read everything you sent me and I understand what you wanna do in terms of an academic career within with indigenous studies as a framework. And she says, don't do it. <laughs> She goes, if I could have not done what I did, which is, you know, native studies and all this other stuff. She says, I wouldn't have done it. If I could change go back in time, I would never have done it, I would have become an English teacher. And I, and I was like, for real? She goes, it is a nightmare. This is this is it's all this kind of politicking that has nothing to do with our people and everything to do with the petty agenda of particular individuals and whatever their egotism and bruised egos um, are perpetuating. At the same time, what that told me was like, whatever potential was in this had been sold down the river a while ago to be compromised exactly, not just by what they're teaching as a reproduction of the dominant settler society, but that the people inside of this environment themselves are toxic. They've internalized... The, the kind of the, the colonial mindset to such a degree that they can't even see it, It's just been camouflaged by being indigenous and utilizing terminology that they appropriate but don't understand. So for example, one of the things that we um, at Indigenous action and, and there's recordings of me and writings by, that I've contributed to that talk about this is the term decolonization and how it's totally misappropriated. And in, in this idea that like you can't you you can't um, you cannot decolonize your food, that's just a nonsensical term. It means nothing. And also you can't imagine your way to to decolonization. Col- colonization is a relationship of power and domination. So what you can do is you can be an anti-colonialist. That's a position. Decolonization is an act. And. The two are not, cannot be conflated for one another, and it's not a state of being, it's a state of doing that involves direct confrontation with, with a asymmetric power relation in which you're the dominated, and you're trying to overthrow the dominator. And a large part of um, either the under and, and ill-informed that just you throw terms out that they don't understand, or academics that are actively misappropriating and misinterpreting and uh, misleading people about what certain terms mean and 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 how they're related and taught, are trying to actually essentially be accommodationist to colonialism, which is to say you're accommodationist for genocide, an accommodationist to um, direct domination, um, murder, you name it. The entire system itself is to be reformed versus to be overturned or rolled back. And actually, that's where I think the abolition of academia or the institution of education comes into it. What I think what we really are is a crisis of imagination. And we're and right now, there's has been no, no moment quite like the present in the sense that there's this global pandemic that has totally forced us to reevaluate the way we actually socially relate to one another. And we can easily go back to the way things were, and just regurgitate the same old things that we were doing before, or we can reimagine what all our relationships to these institutions are. Because one of the strange things is there is a small body of people within academia that do see the writing on the wall, so to speak, that understand that they are utterly disconnected from the societies that they claim to represent and understand. And they want to shift to actually be for lack of a better term related to humanity in the present moment whoever that may be and others that want to maintain it as it is and it's unsustainable as is. so i my view of it is if it's unsustainable as is then put the bullet in the brain of it and start over from scratch and change our relationship to education is entirely because it isn't like we were anti education as a people all of us centralized education and we just did it differently and it was to be shared not hoarded it was to be to about the experience of living in this world as as spiritual beings and how we related to one another across our generations of relations and so I kind of think that that's what the recentering is. The recentering is a centering of values and principles first, then to look at what these institutions do and if they even serve those things at all. And if not, then why not? You know, use radical measures to change them.
2: Yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think I want to have like some people's closing statements, or maybe just a. Uh... A closing, um, closing opinions about uh, what not only Amra brought up, um, as well as um, just what it what it means to uh, decentralize knowledge production and why. Um, there's yeah there I I have so many things in my head about everything everyone is saying. Um, but yeah, I want to, to give space for others to, to have their closing opinions before we, we bounce. Um, but I also wanted to name that, like, lastly, you know, when we're talking about um, the kind of ableism that um, academia perpetuates, um, you know, we saw it since, you know, the, the pandemic locking down everything, uh, there, was, there was a, a complete shift uh to accommodate the kind of disabling of the economy but for a wide mass of people that we don't usually see for people who are experiencing disability and i want to say that it's such a it's such a what a what a what a kick in the face to people folks with disabilities who have been arguing you know to to actually be in these kinds of spaces in a way that can accommodate them via Zoom and via like spaces maybe, yeah, like perceivable spaces outside of the academy. Um, so I just just wanna, you know, name that and name that, like it's also the just the field of study is extremely neurotypical. Um, and in terms of, over intellectualizing or like not not allowing or giving value to people who might not you know have the capacity to read and write in the same ways that um their white counterparts have been taught to is extremely ableist um uh and of course like anti-black and anti-indigenous but um yeah what are what are some people's uh, last thoughts um, and opinions on, like, uh, just just getting getting knowledge out there and um, ways that we can combat the kind of commodification of of knowledge that is a surviving uh, practice of a lot of our um, ancestral peoples? I'll call on um, Bree. I haven't heard from you in a minute.
5: Yeah, I have so many thoughts, (laughs) so many notes. I'm just writing here. Um, I think some, like, song lyrics were coming my head. um, Some quotes were coming my head um, as my closing thoughts. And I'm going to quote a friend who quotes another person who quotes Walter Rodney. But it's, all academics are enemies of the people until proven otherwise. And I think that's something, like, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to, like, <laughs> think about, right? Like, it's not um, my job to prove that the university is worth recuperating, um, even with these resources, right? It's my job to stay committed to what I came in here for, um, which was a love of learning and trying to build that learning for other people. I remember I was an undergrad. I had this very famous white man professor who at NYU <laughs> who said, Oh, what happened in the Congo had nothing to do with racism. And I was like, huh? You know, and I called my father afterwards and I was really broken because I was like, if these are the intellectuals, you know, what does that mean for for the career that I that I wanted, right, in this type of field? And what does it mean for me? And so I, I was like, I will become a professor and I'll make sure no student ever feels like that in my class. And so for me, like, that class has taken form in many different ways. It looks like when I get an opportunity to build altars in the community, right? So like challenging what my classroom looks like for me has been a way that I stay grounded in the vision of learning and sharing that learning. And the song lyric I was thinking about is from Ariba, and it says, it's like, I'm not trying to get by, I'm trying to get free. And I think, like, what abolition means to me is, like, shifting our relationship to the academy, even in our relationship with theft, as not just trying to get by. Because we can, like, do more when we are oriented towards a place of, like, you know, trying to get free. Um, And abolition, for me, looks like that. It feels like the moments where ain't nobody been in class in three weeks, but did nobody fail, you know? (laughs) It looks like... um, it looks like our community is like having enough and not wanting to go to the university in the first place, right? It looks like telling people to go to your herbalist, you're gonna learn just as much about plants as you're gonna do in your botany class, right? Um, and so, yeah, I'm still figuring it out, but I think more and more, I'm trying to pair the this love of learning and the tactics we get and understanding that they're not always gonna be the best with my real desire to like. Yeah, be free and be free in spaces that may not even be worth keeping, but I'm worth keeping and I think we're worth keeping. And (laughs) I think that's something that we can hold on to despite all of the aggression and the literal physical assault on our bodies and souls that being in the archives, in the classroom can bring for us. Yeah, those are some of my closing thoughts.
2: Thank you. Uh, Amra?
0: I think um the closing thoughts I have are just to to share some of the things that that I'm doing, and you know, invite folks to think about what are we doing, and you know, contact us at Indigenous Action, and let's let's talk about things um, that we can do. Uh, because I think there's a lot of folks, and it would be great to do you know a second part to the show of of like examples of people doing this in their communities. Um, but I think there's there's a lot of projects that I'm involved with and engaged with where we are you know writing books and you know right now I'm working with two different tribes um, with the tribal education center. so it's its own institution inherited from you know the boarding schools and all of that. but we're taking their money and doing different things with it such as writing books in our indigenous language, you know um, creating you know, different forms of curriculum that are teaching children how to be you know, of our people, you know, how to be Otham children, how to be Bain children. children. Um, so those are things that that I'm interested in doing and learning and hearing about, like what are the other projects that, that folks are doing, you know, um, and another thing that, that I think connects all of us that we could talk more about and do a second show about is, is also this question of archives. Uh, that is what I spend a lot of my time doing as, you know, this subversive, you know, ghosts in the shell in the institution is I'm working with tribal communities, um, including my own tribal community, to build our own archive, you know, and find ways to do that where we can control and and have a space to preserve our own heritage as, as an undocumented, uh, indig- you know, not undocumented, but <laughs> some of us, but also, um uh, non-federally recognized indigenous community, uh, because we don't have the resources of the colonial nation state to do that. Um, so I'm working with other non-federally recognized communities to to create our own archives, um, so that we can t- control our own narratives of the past and who we were, um, and not be dependent upon these institutions to you know hold our our materials for us, and and also to you know push back against the the narratives that were produced by the the museums and, and the, the universities and the institutions that have uh, you know their own things that we've, they've collected from us you know literally our remains and our bodies but also documents that they produce about us through war and genocide that only tell that story of war and genocide and the you know forced assimilation of our peoples I think there are other th- stories that we can tell um, through our own. Uh, forms of knowledge that we can create our own alternative archives about. So that's some of the work that I'm interested in, I'd be interested to talk to listeners about, and uh, that I'm interested in talking with you all about as well.
2: Thank you. Yeah, a second show would be amazing because there's so much to talk about. Uh, In my own experiences uh, regarding um, actionable things, Uh, yeah, that should be its own separate show. A few things um, uh, could be, or that I've participated in um, have been a liberation school, um, something where anyone can uh, sign up um, to, to facilitate workshops and assemble people within the community and talk about uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, it was a, a hub for people to talk about things that were happening in this specific area that we were in. We were in South Central and we were doing um, ho- holding a space for people to disassemble and like uh, do presentations and workshops and skill shares. And um, it was really amazing. I and mean, it ran for like, I wanna say four years uh, inside of the Cielo Galleries, um, a comrade and an Afro-Indigenous comrade by uh, the name of Skyra uh, had, fa- had helped facilitate that in um, her warehouse space. And um, it, was, it was really amazing because uh, it was a way for people to discuss their ideas, but also like the things that were happening in relationship to the liberation school were also, um, you know, aspects of create mapping out how we can confront, um, you know, imposing forces of gentrification in our neighborhood that are displacing our people and raising rent and, um, ar- like simultaneously arresting people and having shares on like cop watch and other things. And, I think like that and that's I think that's what I mean when I say decentralization. It's not like a it's like you know yeah that that is a hub space, but like you know for for million for you know since the beginning of time, a lot of us have learned from uh not just each other but from our other animal relatives, from other aspects of nature, and I think like removing. Just the aspect outside of the classroom can be a good start. Um, And into into the streets or onto the land, you know, there's action camps where people share skills to, um, you know, learn how to create fires and, like, teach people skills, uh, other detribalized people's specific skills that uh, their ancestors may have um, done. And, um, yeah, whether it be, like... um, yeah, archery or, or any any kind of skill that would be be useful um, as as the world um, the civil world you know comes to an end. Um, but <clears throat> I wanted to yeah get uh, Pilas's um, last closing opinions on this topic.
3: Cool. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. I'm uh, blessed to be a part of it. And, yeah, I just uh, agree with everything everyone's been sharing. Um, I do appreciate, you know, the addressing the ableism, right, and how these schools function, right, and how they perpetuate um, these certain type of standardized forms of uh, learning um, and expression. And, uh, yeah, and it's all in the name of to make us productive machines, right, um, so, yeah, I think uh, reimagining a whole another world system of learning, right, or actually going back to our, you know, uh, traditional ways that we still uh, practice, you know, but have, may have not been uh, fully accessible um, for detribalized or urban urban uh, uh, natives. So I think it's a whole process of, yeah, as we, you know, decolonize, right, I talked about earlier, right, of this, this, this process of, of combating is that ways of learning, understanding, and going back to um, you know just living our lives in a way that's not dictated by these outside um, forces. So um, yeah, and I think uh, just to address real quick with the indigenous and ethnic studies struggles, um, yeah, it, it's um, it's difficult, right, to to be in these spaces um, and to to know um, our you know, uh, our needs, know our, our our battles, our struggles, right, know how the being and their people are being treated um, and exploited, right, and having certain resources at our disposal uh, to be able to try to do something about it. And even if it is just, um, you know, doing research and bringing out uh, different aspects of these struggles. Um, but yeah, I just feel at some point once things get institutionalized, right, they get it kind of did get watered down, right, and lose from the original intention of it. So I just know that students have been struggling for, for, for decades for uh, ethnic studies, some uh, form that, that reflects themselves, you know, and I know what San Francisco State, right, and has instituted an entire college of ethnic studies, right? But then how does it, you know, keep in, you know, the academic bubble, right, and how we stay rooted into the original intentions of, uh, education um, for all in a sense, right? But again, going back to to what type of education. So that, yeah, I think that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but yeah, there are, you know, the role of archiving, you know, us being in these positions again um, is, is important. You know, we have these resources. And then how do you find ways to, to yeah, decentralize that, to redistribute uh, this information um, outside of it? So yeah, like the liberation schools or community spaces, right? Something, one thing that um, try to do is, you know, use the schools for what they have, right? And they got that funding, so getting like honorariums for a speaker and like charging them triple, right? And charging the school triple, and then doing something for free for the community. You know, I think that's one way um, that we can help uh, balance it out, especially for um, folks who who do do solid work. You know, there are these you know writers like Sadia Hartman who who you know bring out with, with beautiful uh, writings. You know, and um, that's essential for us to you know to grow as, as a people. So um, there are you know people out there who are doing the work, um, and it's just trying to find a way to to stay connected and and stay rooted and to bring out, yeah, these different tactics to to um, appreciate the different tactics, right? It's not all just research based, right? Sometimes it's you know, the direct action that can get shit done. You know, and I think, as we said, you know, our goal of to be free, right, and then also of contrarian our own narrative, and not to depend on these institutions. So, um, another thing too, I like to do, um, we about to take an international perspective, intercommunal, right, across these borders of solidarity, right. So there's things like um, uh, the former president of Colombia, for example, Alvaro Uribe, is like a war criminal. Uh, the, the war on drugs, whatever, for 60 years, Plan Colombia, uh, false positives, just so many uh, different um, crimes against uh, Black and Native communities in Colombia, right? And then he's given, like, these honorary positions at these, presi- at, at these uh, prestigious prestigious universities, right, or as a guest lecturer, you know? So I think having the research, understanding, right, we can study this, right, the, the, the violence of Plan Colombia and the drug war, Right. But when we see someone like him or um, whatever, you know, figure even like Hillary Clinton or whoever, you know, coming in and speaking um, at these spaces to be able to 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 call it out. Um, and yeah. And also not just limited to that, but again, staying rooted with community and envisioning uh, you know, a world beyond uh, this, this settler violence. So, um, yeah, there's just so much we can do. I think taking it all in strides, taking it, taking care of ourselves. In the process feeding ourselves nurturing ourselves um i think it, it's it's important for us again i i going in and said um it's, i see it as a warfare in a sense you know spiritual warfare if you want to call it you know but actual violence state violence of gentrification a lot of these schools um are a lot of our forces behind gentrification uh you know and students feed into it you know so um yeah how do we you know stay ready for battle in a sense um without overworking ourselves, right, without falling into the lies and, again, just staying rooted uh, in community in and outside of uh, academia.
2: Thank you. Uh, Anthony, closing opinions? Uh,
1: the I think that the next steps for all of us is is really kind of taking is, – is brainstorming, not just for those of us in this group, but, I mean, in our communities. And trying to figure out how and what we can do to, I guess you could say, to 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 radically transform the communities that were the relationship with the communities and with with which you're part, and those, and then how that relates to, I don't want, I don't like use the term knowledge production because that's directly capitalistic, you know, that's a that's about creating a commodity. And um, but the accumulated wisdom that lives in a variety of different formats and people, and how do we integrate the two together and further that beyond this kind of static? Um, I'm just brain farted on the term, but the uh, Paulo Freire used to call it the oh the bank the banking model of education, and so. Um, get beyond this idea of like this institutional sitting in the classrooms or even now staring at a screen even though i'm ridiculously guilty of doing that for other reasons <laughs> um um and not really interacting with people in and in, in a broader way and and also not really seeing the world around us and 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 now that world is a global world the ramifications of it as like, we just got a historical walkthrough, but then there's also the, red, the readily evident stuff, for example, around climate change um, and how that, basically the so-called most educated, i.e. the ones that went through academia, have decided to, you know, lead the world into, into the disaster that it's currently in. And as that old adage, you know, that that is often attributed to Albert Einstein is, it's like, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result and we've been doing that same thing over and over and expecting a different result and I shouldn't even say we i would say there's a certain uh, population of people that believe that and where what really kind of comes into it is actually listening to one another in a in a totally a way that's free of the burdens of maintaining the institutions and the thinking that we currently have and actually is willing to abandon them and or rebuild them or send them to cinder if that's what needs to be done to get us to the next places that we need to be. And that's a grandiose statement, I realize that. But then there's the more practical stuff begins at a very simple thing, which is what we're doing having a conversation about these topics. And 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 particularly these times where it's so contentious that someone is immediately going to jump on somebody else for some misstep in what they say or how they say it. The only way we can get past that is to actually start listening to one another and building a common dialogue. Because the reality of it is no institution is teaching you anything because we're not if we're not hearing one another. And if you think, if you say one thing and I say the same thing or they use the same words, but they mean something completely different, then clearly we're, we're having a miscommunication and the very supposed notion of us having education has to- totally failed, except for accomplishing in putting us into isolated, um, uh, ends of the room where we don't, we only can progressively misunderstand one another. And, and I, for one, after having done a lot of this work, I realized that I have no vested interest in a building, so to speak. In, in this, the, these are these are objects that are physically built. You know, what I do have a vested interest in is the people that I see every day. And I'd rather hear what they have to say than maintain some giant, you know, set of Rules and regulations bound inside of some some uh, staff agreement or or um, schedule or or whatever it may be or or even some class agreements. What I want to hear is actually I want to hear you know what everybody has, including the worst people. I actually want to hear what they have to say, mostly because then I can go after them later secretly. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, that's that's kind of the gist of it. I, I do think we have to do a follow up that uh, that is also very practical, because I've always said that the most practical thing you can do is talk to your neighbor, and that's something that most of us don't do, and, I, and I'm guilty as guilty as anybody else. But I think that if we could start there and then transfer that same mentality into the into bridging what was and I forget who said it. But the was it the campus community divide? then we and then we can also bridge the gap between time and of the past that is kept hidden and in tomes of of decaying paper and and libraries to what's happening right now, then we can maybe, maybe turn some things around and imagine some new shit, because I know I'm looking forward to something new as opposed to just rehashing the same old, same old.
4: Thank you so much for having me. I want to say to close, it's been such an honor. Um, And to think a little bit about our question of abolition in the context of the university. I really think abolition means the end of the university and any steps we can take towards that end. Um, It looks like the decentralization of knowledge that we've been talking about thus far. And... It really requires us to not lean on our own understanding, but lean on the understandings of those who come before us and our community members. And so even when we don't know uh, uh, or think of it as a more theoretical project, there are tangible ways we can redistribute resources and confront the university. Um, in ways that destabilize it that that hopefully rupture it um and i think the more and more we try to find those places and those moments the closer we get to seeing um the university fall and the closer we get to more expensively living in the worlds that we are old and so yeah i think that's what i want to leave people with thank you so much
2: Thank you all. Thank you so much for having this lovely conversation. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners, students, other, other people who are involved in, in colleges or universities or school in general are gonna um, really appreciate a lot of people's perspectives. Uh, thank you so much to our guests, uh, Pilas and Brie Bird uh y'all are amazing um yeah and that's that's our show thanks so much for listening stay dangerous y'all
1: you can find this broadcast on any of the usual podcast platforms or at www.indigenousaction.org Email us pics of burning cop cars, burning
0: churches, burning forts, or any questions or topics you'd like to hear us go claws out on at iainfo at protonmail.com.